Birth, marriage, parenthood, death. It all goes by in a flash. What is any of it worth? What, if anything, do we learn? And if you want to leave it all behind when the time comes, when you really can't stand it any more, then who is anyone to try and stop you? So roll that all together and you have this story. The Red-Headed Crate. Coming round, they call it. Coming to. Surfacing. Emerging from the dark. Waking up, recovering, regaining consciousness. Welcome back to the world. Welcome back to the utterly banal. Great unwanted gift of life that has not, after all, been shaken off. Here I am again, in a hospital bed. Again, there are lights and there is noise. The busy clatter of shoes on tiled floors. The flipping of medical notes on clipboards. The humming of support machines, ventilators, heart monitors. The bleeping, blinking apparatus of the fight against the angel of death. Why did you forsake me, sweet angel? I know all about paracetamol. Overdose on that, and even when the stomach pumpers have had their fun, your liver collapses days later, just when you'd begun to give life another grudging look-in. No, then, not paracetamol, but ibuprofen. Certainly dangerous, too, but more efficacious for the purposes of safely terminating your existence. So I thought. Fooled again, and I had planned so well. Stashed patiently, left a note, but not in the obvious places, made my peace with the universe, knocked back a large gin and tonic with my fistful of pills, and jumped onto the slide to nothingness. Yet here I am, being saved, being hauled into the light by the overwrought conscience of medical ethics. Those of us on the down escalator are rudely put in reverse. It would not do to let an old man in the early stages of dementia make his own decisions. And look, there she sits, flesh and blood, apple of my eye, weeping quietly and wondering what she could have done better. And I just want there to be no more guilt, no more sorrow. My daughter is too full of love. She cannot bear to let go of this pale imitation of her father. She wants to nurse his decline, to comfort his pain. Admirable, but also intolerable. Perhaps I will die from an overdose of caring. She should live her own life, chase rainbows, dream beyond the horizon. She should hoard happiness for herself, not dispense it to the undeserving. I have two children, one saint, one sinner, one sweet, one sour, one beauty, one bastard. Oh, I am too harsh but he really doesn't care for anything except his bank balance. For him, I should live, to disturb him with a slow decaying, and then perhaps haunt him, a smelly, incontinent ghost, embarrassing his pomposity at every opportunity, a ghost with Alzheimer's, aphasia, violent mood swings and rotten teeth, shambling about, not able to find the exit, repeating inane questions every ten seconds. How apposite! But for her... I want to run for the hills of extinction, to free her from me, to rid her troubled mind of the woes of duty. I wish to banish the indignity of my withering to the black hole of finality, so that she may dance and sing and rip joy from the fabric of the sky, as she surely was born to do. Mr. Williams, you had us worried. Doctor, I'm not to be resuscitated. Nonsense. I am losing my mind. 
You have mild cognitive decline. I'll be in nappies by Christmas. It is very foolish to swallow that many ibuprofen capsules. Not if you want to shuffle off mortal coils. I have made a referral to the old-age psychiatrist. It is not mad simply to want to die. You're suffering from depression. I'm suffering from irritation. Exactly. It's one of the symptoms. I'll have to try again. Then we may have to detain you. You're condemning me to misery. You had your daughter beside herself with worry. Compulsory existence, enforced through cruelty. Don't be so dramatic. So they drained my gut of death juice and discharged me to the tedium of continuation. Marianne, my daughter, blamed herself, then arranged round-the-clock care to keep me under surveillance. I was taken to an outpatient appointment with Professor Klopstock, an expert in the ageing mind. He prescribed antidepressants and did a mini-mental state exam. I knew the date and who the Prime Minister was. "'He's an old bollocks,' I said. "'You're not wrong there,' said Klopstock. "'But,' I said, "'I can't remember what happened yesterday, "'and sometimes I can't find the word for the simplest thing, "'like plate or book.' "'Very early stages,' he said. "'Come to the memory clinic.' "'Not on your Nelly,' I said. "'Think about your daughter,' he said. "'Oh, piss off,' I said. "'And that was that.' "'A Christmas card arrived from Kevin, my son, two months early.' You're supposed to love your children, all of them, even the ones who vote Tory and own slaves. But it is a noted failing of mine that not only do I not value my children equally, not only do I not love my son, but I actively despise him. Yes, yes, correct, because I see so much of myself in him. But distilled, pared down to malevolent essence. It's not a pretty sight. He treats people as disposable means. He manipulates, he deceives. Two roads diverged. He took the one less travelled by, and then branched off that onto the psychopath. Ha! It started at puberty. Really, humans shouldn't live much beyond the age of thirteen. It's all downhill from there in terms of charm, intelligence and decency. He sang beautifully and was kind to his younger sister. Then his voice broke and he started pulling the wings off flies. I found him one day in the garden. He had a matchbox in his hand, and there was a neat pile of matches on the grass. He'd stuffed the box with earwigs and woodlice, and he set it alight. Why? I asked. To see if they make a noise, he replied. You haven't eaten your breakfast, Mr. Williams. No, sorry. I find myself apologising all the time to people I don't know. It is part of the great diminishing that we geriatrics must go through. Frail, timid, stooped, hunched, defensive, terrified. The realisation is hard won. You must try to resist, but you tend to revert to type unconsciously. I wasn't hungry, and the food was extremely unappetizing anyway. Instead, I decided to discharge myself from care. I apologetically gave her her marching orders. Of course, she'd go running to my daughter to warn her of my madness and the unreasonable, not to say ungrateful, attitude. But there was little time to spare. I would have to make good my getaway and execute my plan of self-execution quickly, before pennies dropped and the whole hand-wringing kerfuffle began again. I had thought it all through so carefully the first time. Pills are painless, and do not have the angry accusatory statement of hanging or jumping. Those were last on my list, but as needs must, I wouldn't rule them out completely. Throwing myself under a train a la Anna Karenina, I had ruled out. Surely you cannot make another person the agent of your destruction without permission. No doubt London Underground drivers are all used to it, but minced viscera on the glass of the cab must certainly be an ugly thing. 
I had read a lot about suicide, especially the concept of the suicide decision, the notion that once you've decided there's nothing stopping you, all the well-intentioned restraint in the world rendered useless in the end. Only those who don't want to die keep failing. I didn't want to be one of them. So I headed for the garage, locked the door that connected it to the kitchen, and tied the inside crossbar of the main metal door to a joist in the roof so that it couldn't be opened easily. Time for a little carbon monoxide poisoning. I sat in the car, engine on, exhaust pumping, and the soft waves of sleep broke over me like a winding sheet. You are detained under Section 2 of the Mental Health Act for the purposes of assessment or assessment followed by treatment. And good morning to you. You have the right to apply to a tribunal, but not the right to die with dignity. I was not nearly thorough enough with my preparations. I was rushed. I was not scientific. I did not look with sufficient care at the ventilation points in the room. Ergo, it must have been a cry for help. Help with what, you infuriating moralists? I was found, found and revived again. What a waste of resource. What a completely unjustified focus of attention. The moribund old misanthropist is brought round again. But to what? Dressing down, medication, debates about the benefits of electroconvulsive therapy, i.e. brain frying, for a man in my condition. There's been a lot of life. Enough. I'm not greedy. No need for bucket lists. I met the love of my life. We married. We had two children. She left me for another man. She came back. We fell in love again. We argued. She left me again. She went to live in Vietnam. She died of a snake bite. I went out for the funeral. I came there to despise it all, but I was transmogrified by the place. I understood, made peace, was humbled, was enlightened. Well, just a little bit. We returned, closer and with a wee bit of wisdom. Marianne and I, that is, not Kevin. He wanted to investigate the pecuniary risk-reward calculations of the child-sex tourist industry. I don't know that. I don't know that for sure. But I suspect, beyond reasonable doubt, will that do? Point is, seen a lot, lived a lot, was sufficiently outraged and amazed, and now I'll be off to the withdrawing room. So, you have to lie. You have to see the errors of your ways, the pain and suffering you have caused. You promise that you will never, you will never, ever. And they lap it up like catnip. Do you lap catnip? Well, never mind, never had a cat. Cats are too clever, or full of disdain. My bruised ego would never have coped. It was dogs for me, until they seemed too old and decrepit, and I saw myself in them, and I couldn't put another poor friend through my slow decomposition. Psychiatrists and social workers, come to think of it, are actually a bit like dogs. Forget the catnip. Remorse? My favourite thing. Insight and changed behaviour? My favourite thing. Medication and total acceptance of the care plan? My favourite thing. You're a grand man altogether. You go home and be a good boy. I will, you patronising bastards. I will, you deniers of mortality. Hippocratic oaths to you all. I returned to my dwelling. Marianne was ruthless. The carers had been given strict instructions not to follow my instructions. They seemed to believe there was no problem that could not be solved through large print messages and shouting. But although my mind is disintegrating, although my thoughts deliquesce and dribble away down the drain of regret and forgetting, I am not going deaf. I do not need to be shouted at, at least not unless it's in anger. Marianne is not very good with anger. She tries, bless her, but she can't hold back the tears, and then she throws her arms around me and tells me how sorry she is. She summoned Kevin. The idea was for him to give me a stern rebuke. She must have forgotten the very low regard in which I hold my son. 
Frankly, I didn't think he would be bothered, but alas, he turned up, clearly rehearsed, and admonishment was delivered. You can't do this to other people. What would you know about other people? It's not fair on Marianne. Your late flowering concern for her is very touching. It's the height of selfishness. It's not selfish to want to put me out of your misery. You're not being rational. I'm being perfectly rational. I want to die. Look, it'll happen soon enough. Only after I can't remember who you or Marianne are any more, and I don't want that. But you're taking drugs for the Alzheimer's. They don't work. At best, they slow things down a little. Well, then, I don't want to go into a home. Nobody's saying you should. I don't want to sing bloody sea shanties and play pass the parcel. I don't want to have to dine with Mabel and Arinthia and sleep in front of a TV that is never turned to Channel 4. I don't want to hobble around looking for my room while I slowly shit myself and my teeth fall out one by one so that all I can eat is pureed offal. I just want to leap in front of a flying bullet. He got fed up soon enough and left. I half hoped he might wring my neck beforehand, but he never really liked getting his hands dirty. I sank morosely into the contemplation of what I could recall of my life, for now at least, thank God, it was quite a lot. On balance, I am grateful to have experienced the utter shattering of total obsessional love, love as reckless abandon, love as absolute infatuation, love as complete car crash. Agnes's brain crackled like a Geiger counter. Her wit could lacerate you, but you had to admire her gall. You look like an undertaker's assistant, who has just been ravished by an ex-nun, she said to me one day, when I had tried to dress smartly for the launch party of her book on the microclimates of Papua New Guinea. Agnes was an academic, an explorer, an environmentalist, before anyone knew what that meant, and also a raconteur. She dazzled. I sweated. She blossomed. I cowered. But, by Christ, it was worth it, just for the piercing laser of her passion, just for the wonder of her ever-searching mind. I had to run to keep up with Agnes. I never kept up, but I kept running. I raised the children mostly on my own. Agnes would teleport in on occasion to offer advice or to tickle her offspring with the tantalising promise of high adventure soon, someday. But they adored her. Even when she was behaving disgracefully, they adored her. They felt pity for my plight, of course, especially when she left me for the second time, but no morality, no weak little wedding vow could hold back the sheer power of her appetite. She was the Lamia. Men fell hopelessly for every aspect of her every aspect, and then they emerged from the plunge pool of her love, utterly undone. She took hearts and minds and rearranged them. We were the poor, bethwattled victims of her physical and emotional experiments, but we were willing victims. Darling, it's not that I don't adore you. I do, but Christopher Fitzwarren speaks ancient Greek to me and can make me come five times a night. There's no satisfactory riposte to that kind of utterance. My fate now is so much worse than my fate then. I was totally nourished, you see, by the crumbs that fell from Agnes's table. I've had my crack at happiness, played my innings, run my marathon... The more desperate I get, the less am I able to put plans into action. I ruminate on ridiculous methods of self-slaughter, injecting myself with air bubbles, drinking bleach, pushing a knitting needle through my eyeball, self-immolating with petrol and my old cigar lighter that Agnes bought me in a bazaar in Marrakesh, hanging myself from the sturdy 1930s Art Deco light fitting in the dining room that Marianne gave us for our wobbly silver wedding anniversary, and so on. 
Eventually, a new scheme, or at least the parameters of a new scheme, are sketched in my head. What Marianne, and to a lesser extent Kevin, can't bear is the thought of deliberate suicide as some kind of statement about them. But surely there is a window of opportunity between the onset of dementia and the full establishment of the status of the drooling loon when I may fool them all into thinking that I was confused and made a mistake rather than consciously trying to kill myself. Granted, I have something of a track record to suggest otherwise, but it is amazing in my experience how much people will believe what they would prefer to believe rather than the evidence. There's a bridge near the house that has a spectacular drop onto the road below. A fall from such a height would be fatal. During the day, there would be too great a risk of landing on a car, or worse, having one run you over just as you splash down like a dollop of strawberry jam. But at night, the dead of night, you'd spatter away unnoticed, until the morning light revealed you as an unspectacular smear of roadkill. So I imagine. What I have to do now is start wandering at night. Of course, I must be very careful, keep on this side of manageable, no accidents until my grand finale, otherwise I'll be whisked off to 1940s wallpaper and piped Mantovani before you can say multi-infarct. I don't really miss my job as a head teacher. To be honest, the thought that I was ever appointed as one seems hilarious now. I suppose I did my best. It's hard to sift through the layers of cynical reflection that have settled like rotting leaves on the innocence of my sense of vocation. I'll have a delve, see if I can find something pure under the weight of complaint and fury. I was drawn to teaching, certainly, by a strong desire to do something useful. I didn't want to work in a bank or for some company making useless crap. I connected, I hope this is not the delusion of my atrophied brain, I connected with children and used my authority to help them grasp the basics of English and maths, of reading and writing and arithmetic. Old school, but kind, hard-working, devoted, compassionate. Am I misremembering, perhaps? Maybe I was just another bog-standard slogger, yelling and carping like the rest of them at how irritating kids and more significantly parents can be, but I hope not. Primary school education is so much more important than secondary. They've sunk or they've swum before those preening, supercilious narcissists have stepped up to the blackboard. I was a teacher, hell, I was a good teacher. But no one, no one, I declare, could possibly be a good head teacher. You suddenly become the administrator of an entity you don't understand. The school, this, the school, that. It's not a business, not a shop, not a brand, but you are forced to behave as if it is. Year on year, more blizzards of process and so-called accountability blew across us. Those who try to teach are all eventually suffocated and silenced by the bureaucratic excrement of political hysteria. Teaching was a noble profession. It became a blood sport. In the end, we were all in high-vis jackets on the chain gang, and the public was invited to spit at us. But in the early days, there were ideas. There was enthusiasm, there was camaraderie. Old men think fondly of the past. Well, it was a country where we felt welcome. I chased knowledge, went anywhere for it. That's where I met Agnes, at a conference on rainfall patterns in Madagascar, of all things. Nothing to do with my work, evidently. But I could swing a few invitations in those days, and I liked to imagine myself as an intellectual. Agnes approached the podium with nonchalance, but then she engaged her audience like a proselytizing preacher, revealing the secrets of salvation. I can't remember anything about the presentation now, except there was a lot of talk about lizards. I was smitten. I had to meet her. 
I had to get her to talk to me, and I did. First, I asked some intelligent questions about the reducing habitat of the chameleon. Of concern to scientists, even then, she asked me if I'd like to go to bed. This, in full earshot of everyone. Darling, I'm so bored. Why don't we rut like lemurs and I'll fill you in on deforestation? Who could resist? Oh, it was mad, it was reckless. I knew it would all end in tears, but I provided stability and encouragement, and I had, it seems, an endless reserve of forgiveness. We had two children, and you can't ever turn back from that, one taking all our best attributes and enhancing them, and one distilling viciousness and making it work to his advantage. You don't understand, Kevin. You overcomplicate him. He is very simple, really, and very likable if you just ignore everything. Do make an effort. Physical love is all very well, but thankfully its importance passes with time. By time, I mean dwindling hunger, widening girth, the consumption of more exciting new red grape varieties, prostate problems, lassitude, uncomfortable side effects from Viagra, self-loathing, existential angst, and flatulence. Yes, it all passes away, but the brain, at least the pre-fading brain, carries on its inquiries into the nature of the universe, and in my case, the carving is on Southeast Asian Hindu and Buddhist temples. I am not a religious man... In fact, so much about organised religion I find infantile and corrupt, but when Agnes and I first approached Angor Wat, I almost had a revelation. I say almost because, luckily, my malnourished Western cynicism was unable to embrace the divine fully. Still, it was the nearest to transcendent peace that I'd ever come. I'm having a punt that death might get me back to that transcendent peace. Who could deny me that? I'm trying to prove, you see that I have had a full and fair portion of the earthly delights. I am glutted on the bounty of mortality. There is no need to pity me, or to chastise me with the blackmail of life's sanctity. My accomplishments. I have been a half-baked pseudo-philosopher, with a kindly streak, a taste for excess, and a fondness for spontaneous acts of generosity. I have been a bad enough parent, a good enough lover, a gentle enough man, and a reasonable teacher. There's been chaos and cacophony, but also a few passable improvised tunes, so that's why I'm wandering tonight. Wandering? Not that we haven't been here before. In fact, I'm sure it has added to my dread, to the fear of becoming witless. My mother wandered in her winter years, and a whirlwind of anxiety flustered around her. I had never been an especially loving son, but then she'd never been a particularly caring parent. I had always disappointed her somehow. When I became a teacher, it was a shame I hadn't been a doctor or a lawyer. When I became a head teacher, I would have had a much higher salary if I'd chosen finance. I would visit dutifully and be mildly reprimanded for my perceived failings. The clock ticked away, and our relationship did not improve. When my father died... And I had been much closer to my father, although he was neurotic and eccentric. My mother hardened. The bitterness about her life, which she had always harboured, but which my father had managed to keep in check, started to curdle whatever was left in her of the milk of human kindness. I couldn't stand more than a day or two in her company. Agnes thought her a frightful monster, and refused to accompany me on my slightly masochistic sojourns. So we settled into frequent brief encounters, where I would inquire after mother's well-being, and she would douse me in the acid of regret. But then her mind slowed and the gravitational force of dementia pulled her into the orbit of endless repetition, forgetful, forgetting, forgotten, wandering to nowhere with no purpose and no hope. Everything eventually was shredded. 
intelligence, wit, interaction, recognition, and finally, all bodily functions, starting with continence and ending with swallowing, to desiccation with all of it. And with this disintegration of character, all rage was snuffed out. My mother became docile, calm, passive. Perhaps I should have been grateful for small mercies, but there she was, an imbecile, and I fumed in the role of God and asked what was the value of her life. What was the point in preserving this empty husk of the living dead? Would anyone who could foresee this fate persevere and embrace the years of absolute dependence swaddled in the nightmare of the duty of others? Off I go into the night. I had been tucked up in beddybys by my jailers at 10pm, but they have now happily buggered off, and after a shallow slumber of a few hours... I am free to peel back the covers, don my dressing gown and slippers, and step into the velvet lake of darkness. I can't remember at what age dressing gowns and slippers appeared. They are terrible icons of decrepitude, but they keep me warm as I make my way, with the guardian tucked under my arm, to the bridge of sighs. There is no one about. It is silent as the grave, into which, not so far away now, I long to leap. There is a bench, and there is a street lamp. How convenient. I sit and read. I am a night owl. Paranoia. What if I am joined on my bench by a fellow adherent to the right of self-termination? Shall I engage them in small talk? Shall I try to dissuade them? What hypocrisy that would be. I really do hope I remain alone here. The rest is complicated. I may have fallen asleep. I may have dreamed. On the other hand, it all seemed so real. I was back in my own room at home. How, I don't know. There was nobody with me. I had not been found, and gently guided away from danger, as in my fiendish fooling plan. And there was someone in my bed, not a great outcome for a night of adventuring, an intruder. But on closer examination, not so. There in the bed was I. Here, standing at the bed, was I. Metaphysical conundrum, certainly, but also, in a flash, great revelation. I was being given an opportunity, by what supernatural happenstance I have no idea, but an opportunity that must not be passed up, to kill myself in the third person. By killing him there in the bed, I must surely also kill him here, doing the killing. A perfect ending. I grabbed a pillow and pushed it into his mean little face. I've never liked that face. Too full of self-pity and cowardice. I hold firm as he struggles, using all my strength and all my weight... I have to triumph over him, or perhaps not. What if I give up, and he is so enraged by my efforts that he takes his revenge? What if he pushes me onto the bed, swipes my pillow, and returns the favour? We could go on like that forever. An interesting thought. But he squirmed in my grip. He was fighting for his life. Didn't he know he was me? It started with my balance, I think. A queasy sense of giddiness came over me. I fell forward and stretched out both hands, still clutching the pillow. Now there wasn't anyone in the bed, just me staggering about. I sort of ricocheted off the bed and slumped to the floor. I felt a burning at the back of my head and thought I must have banged it against something. But there was no blood, just a pounding coming from somewhere behind my brain and sending wave after wave of pulsing pain through to my eyes. I tried to rub my eyes, but I couldn't lift my right hand. I managed to cradle my head in my left hand, but that one movement seemed to take an age. I opened my mouth to cry for help, stupidly, as I knew there was no one around. I couldn't form any words, and just a feeble moan escaped my lips. I knew exactly what had happened, even in the stew of my befuddlement. Funny that. 
how a thought can form without words, a dawning realisation followed by totally impotent rage. Useless indignation added to the shrieking in my skull. Thank you, Jesus H. Christ Satan, you bad bastard. How am I going to kill myself after a stroke? At least I lost consciousness. The red-headed crate is one of the most beautiful snakes in the world, with a long, sleek black body and a vivid vermilion head. Found in the lowland and coastal areas of Vietnam, the snake is a nocturnal hunter. There are very few casualties from its bite, as it tends to stay away from humans and is lethargic and passive during the day. Agnes, of course, went out into the jungle at night. There's a photograph of her killer left accusingly on her camera. Magnificent creature. Silly Agnes. She probably started lecturing the snake about her latest theory. It clearly wasn't impressed, and now it has come for me. I see it slithering up the wall and across the ceiling, its forked tongue smelling me out. I have no idea where I am. Perhaps I have died. Is this transcendent peace? Hardly, with that snake glaring at me. Look at those menacing cold reptilian eyes. And now, here they all come the lead characters of my tale, bustling in and out of the room. They don't appear to be paying me any attention at all. There's Agnes in a ball gown, dancing with a thousand lovers. She scatters them like confetti as she glides across the floor. There's Kevin, cutting some kind of shady deal in the corner, the bounder. And my favourite class. Here they come, running in from break time. Settle down, take out your books, turn to chapter nine. Let's do some long division, shall we? And Marianne, there she is, talking to the snake. That's a very dangerous thing to do. It opens its mouth to bare its fangs. Take care, Marianne. He has stabilised. But will he be able to walk and talk? I think that's unlikely, I'm afraid. It's worse than death. We can't know that. What can we do? Let's monitor the situation for a time and then choose a suitable care home. It's what he feared the most. The majority of us will spend our last days in a care home. He would rather be dead. He can be looked after. Yes, but is it life? Take some time to reflect. He may still recognise some people, enjoy some things. Who are we to deny that? Do you think it's possible to induce a stroke? I don't understand. Somehow to make yourself have a stroke? That's absurd. I'm sorry. Don't be. It's a stressful time for everyone involved. Snatches of conversation dribble over me. It's all spilt milk. No use in howling. I am on the periphery of life now, a liminal figure, inert but occupying space. They come to prod me, check and change the various tubes and wires that penetrate my useless flesh. I can twitch, but genuine mobility is beyond me. I black out, I come to, I dream and drift and fret. Then at last they disconnect me from their machines, those great preservers of existence, and discharge me from the intensity of intensive care. I am a manageable slab of putrefying meat, Expose me to the winds and rain. Let me serve as carrion for the birds. But no, it's a wheelchair, a blanket, and hot drinks through a straw. On a good day, I'm parked by a window. There it is, the world, the wide and wonderful world, out of reach. Memory collapses into memory. Sudden anxiety flares, the hot magma of helpless misery. It spreads over everything and burns through to the centre of every thought. Then gradually, ever so gradually, it cools, it sets, it numbs. Later still, what has hardened dissolves. I erode, 
Recognition fails. Desire, volition, self-perception all weather away. And still, the urge to preserve and persist assails me. The chattering, the feeding, the wheeling about, the endless flow of tea. Who am I? What am I? Something inconsequential. On the wall, in a frame, are Joe Huey's Ten Absolutes of Dementia Care. Agree, never argue. Divert, never reason. Distract, never shame. Reassure, never lecture. Reminisce, never say remember. Repeat, never say I told you. Do what they can do, never say you can't. Ask, never demand. Encourage, never condescend. Reinforce, never force. And the Ten Commandments, as always, are impossible to obey. And the Ten Commandments, as always, slay with suffocating kindness. And the Ten Commandments, as always, make you want to scream, Who are you, God, to banish honesty, rage, and despair? Thou shalt not kill thyself. She sits beside me. Sometimes she holds my hands and strokes my face. When she's not silently weeping, she looks into my eyes. What can she possibly see there? I have only the baby-blue, unfocused stare of vacant anguish. Hold that stare. Lose yourself now, my dear, in the wretched oblivion of my gaze. Dad? Did you say something? Dad? Dad? Are you trying to say something? Thank you.